0: Words, they get golly hard when they jumble, jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a
1: turtle, murky fool, like Squirtle and cake Row. Cold blood is with the keep, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about being numb and disconnected, how we're taught from an early age to stifle our feelings and emotions, stifle our pain, our hunger, our joy, and our bodily urges. We're told to sit still and be quiet, then heap on top of that a bunch of shame and off we go. So it's no wonder we spend our adulthood mastering stress, overwhelm, not paying attention to the signals our bodies send, and becoming disembodied. We lose knowledge of the feelings in our bodies, feel less pleasure, our intuition quiets, and the treasure of our natural bodily intelligence is hidden from view. We experience a habitual panic response, chronic barriers, and stop coloring inside or outside of the lines. My guest today is Michaela Boehm. She is the author of The Wild Woman's Way, Unlock Your Full Potential for Pleasure, Power, and Fulfillment. Michaela teaches and counsels internationally as an expert in intimacy and sexuality. Born and raised in Austria, Michaela combines her training in psychology and extensive clinical counseling experience with her in-depth training in the yogic arts as classical Kashmiri tantric lineage holder. Michaela's approach empowers her students through an eclectic mix of education, experiential exercises, and guided explorations. Known for her work with high-performing individuals, her ongoing private clients include Oscar-winning actors, producers, business pioneers, and multiple Grammy-winning musicians. She lives on an organic farm in California where she rescues and rehabilitates animals. Welcome, Mikaela, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I, I want to start with, well, I'm debating, but I think I want to start with talking about the numbness. As I just reread the introduction, I, I realize, that, and we'll talk about this later, just the feelings I have even saying the title of your book, it's like the shame rises <laughs> inside of me to even be talking about this, uh, you know, fulfillment and sensual pleasure and sexuality. Um, so we'll get to that. But let's start with the numbness. And... um the, the sense of losing authority over our, our bodies and what that looks like and what we'll talk to you about what disconnects us from our bodies, where that comes from. But maybe just start with what that looks like to you.
0: Mm. Oh, that's such a long and and fraught question, right? Well, I do think that, uh, you know, and when you say, you know, you feel all kinds of things just looking at the title, that is why I wrote the book, because Um, a lot of the book had to do with me having to go through all the same things that everyone else goes through. Um, Meaning that, you know, the fact that I'm an expert in those uh, fields does not make me immune to why we're numb. And what it looks like, we'll talk about why in a second, uh, but what it looks like is the ever-increasing disconnection from our feeling body. And what I mean by feeling body is the part of us that for millions of years has kept us alive and sane, you know, and safe, meaning uh, that internal navigation device that um, uh, comprises our instincts, uh, gives us warning signs, allows us to feel things, um, gives us intuition, uh, you know, is the, is the source of strength. That particular part of us has uh, suffered simply because there's so much inflow and so much overwhelm that the system has to shut down on a certain level because otherwise we can't function. And uh, it used to be that that shutdown was a temporary thing, right, in a moment of fight or flight, for instance, when you were hunted by a tiger or something. But now uh, our entire life is such that um, the overwhelm requires that we power down certain Faculties in our system. And those faculties are very important when it comes to health and also to making good decisions, and interestingly enough, also to setting boundaries. We can talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but also, those faculties um, are the faculties needed for pleasure, right? For sensual pleasure. Um, as in enjoying all five senses in our lives, and sexual pleasure as in having arousal and desire.
1: You know, you mentioned um, not being immune to these things, and I think that that's wonderfully an aspect that runs through the book because you remind us, the reader, that your life and the life that you've chosen, this balanced life. I want to definitely talk about that, about choosing your life and the, the sacrifices you have to make and the choices. But you go through that That you're still dealing with, you haven't isolated yourself and taken yourself out of the modern world. So you're still dealing with the pressures and stresses that may cause numbing. Um, but you've not only added this I, I won't even call it a practice because it's not something that you've added to your life or that you've put on top of. It's become the fabric of your life. So you're living through this way of being that allows you to recognize when you've gone into the the flight or Friday that you've become stiff or numb and you then react to that.
0: Yes. Yeah, and I think that's the important thing. Um, you know, it's easy to... Uh, paint a utopian or aspirational picture. And a lot of our lives um, nowadays, or the the social media that we receive, is kind of aspirational messages, right? Uh, It's perfect people with the perfect homes, the perfect men, the perfect children in the perfect yoga bodies doing perfect things, right? And (laughs) that is, of course, not how it is for 99% of all people, and even those who are portrayed as perfect, it's not the case. So I don't think uh, there is a way to turn back the clock or make these things not happen. They are our reality, but there is a way to remedy them. And as you said, one of the first things to do is recognize when we are numb or recognize when we are shut off or recognize when we are traumatized um, and then have counteractive Um, practices and measures in place so we can go back to what is a much more uh, native state in our body and mind and emotions. So it's definitely not, uh, and you know, the whole book is definitely not about going to the cave or going into the perfect everlasting yoga retreat. It is specifically made so that we can live a really, really full life. And at the same time, Enjoy the fullness of our bodies and our emotions and our uh, engagement with life.
1: I like that you call that lifestyle porn in the book. You said we're told we should learn, lean in, drop out, um, and on top of it all, be forever young and radiant. And you also mentioned that we need to become someone else to be loved and successful in sort of society today, that even with self-help, I and mean, we can call it self-help porn too, that with, with the self-help movement, that, that there's this, you mentioned a fallacy that operates all on not being enough, and that to be successful or be loved, we have to be something else, and that that's part of what, what keeps us numb, this feeling of inadequacy. And your book approaches it in a, in a very different way. He's like, this is not a self-help manual. Yes. So what is it?
0: Um, it's essentially an invitation to remember that which is already there. Right? And, and I'm very passionate about that because I have been doing this for a long time. And I also work with very famous people, both men and women, um, who are um, exposed to these pressures, you know, times a thousand. And so it's very important to understand that who we are as women is complete, And it is uh, enough. Now, the important piece here and the conflation that sometimes happens is that being enough and being good enough and being uh, full as the person that we are does not mean we couldn't change or we couldn't learn new skills. But there's a difference between learning a new skill because one wants to become a fuller human being and learning a skill in order to maybe one day be loved. And, and, and you know, they, it might look the same. Like, for instance, um, I'm trying to come up with something, uh, movement, right? So, so dance. Let's just say uh, you feel that you spend too much time in very linear activities and you spend a lot of time on your desk or in the car or driving your children or, you know, you, you're just not getting enough movement of the – sensual, um, happy kind, let's put it this way. So you could uh, say, well, you know, I'm not woman enough and I'm not uh, enough of a turn on for my man or woman of choice. Um, and so hence I now need to go and take, I don't know, pole dancing classes so that I'm enough for my sexual partner. Or you could say, well, there's a whole side of me that isn't expressed and that side um, is a glorious part of me that I want to cultivate a bit more. So I have a fuller expression when it comes time for the more sexual and sensual things. So let me go and learn how to move my body uninhibited, um, you know, in a nonlinear
1: way. That's a very different um, approach to improving oneself. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, so we kind of had set the stage for, for everyone listening to understand the difference between what you describe as flow versus go and where the thinking, doing, actions put our energy in our body.
0: Yes. Um, I think that's, you know, that, that's one of the really important aspects of understanding before you do anything about it. Because we are built uh, to use our lower bodies, So one of the ways that we can look at this is energy distribution, right? So in every human being, there is a certain amount of energy available. And that energy uh, comprises everything from your thoughts to the body functions that are always happening to the available energy that you can put somewhere, right? An activity or a thought or anything like that. And the energy is literally energy, um, electrical energy, that's put out on the cortex of the brain. And a human being only has a certain output. You can't upgrade the RAM like you can on a computer, so to speak. And because of that, there is only that much energy available. And within that, the energy goes where it's needed most. And traditionally speaking, when we look at human survival, How women were built was for procreation, right? We had to um, have an ovulation, which took eating, essentially, right? And, And, of course, in the ancient days, you couldn't just go to a supermarket. Everything had to be hunted and gathered. So you had to eat so that you could ovulate, so you could conceive, so you could stay pregnant, give birth, and then feed your child from your own body. And with that, the energy had to be stable it had to be in the lower body and it had to um, include in instinct and intuition as a way to keep track of your children and the animals and the fire and you know all of those kind of things and that's still so because we are still run by hormones it doesn't matter how we have equality in you know in society ideally Um, it has to do with how hormones run the body and so that said When we are in go mode, and what I mean by go mode is we get things done, we have to use all the energy that's available for us or in us and kind of squeeze it up and forward because it's all about thinking, planning, projecting into the future, giving other people direction. So there's a very strong linear forward motion that is required to get stuff done. And, you know, of course, technically speaking, when you drive somewhere, or go somewhere, or fly somewhere, there is a forward motion to that. And that forward motion expresses in the energy going up into the neck and shoulders and head and jaw. And so we have a, a huge amount of complaints around that, right, in, in women's bodies the tightness in the neck and shoulders, the clenching of the jaw, the grinding of the teeth, the headaches. That feeling of buzzing in the head that's literally energy uh, having been brought up to be used, and all the while that happens, the parts of us that are responsible for flow, so flow being the parts of us that goes with the flow that uh, enjoys foods and company and children and puppies and music and movement and cooking and um, you know speaking and and communing. That part of us sits in the lower body, and that lower body is parked in a chair for most people, or in a car seat, or in a plane seat. So the areas that are not being used don't need a lot of power. They don't need a lot of um, energy, so they become parked, so to speak, right? And they become somewhat numb, because they're not turned on with energy and attention. So... There's nothing wrong with go mode. Definitely very important that we can get stuff done. And that's true for men and women alike. But if we want to engage in the activities that have to do with flow, like relationship, like sex, like pleasure, like um, community, uh, enjoyment, sensuality, all of those uh, require that energy is brought back down into the lower body.
1: And creativity as well, right, which is critical for everyone, even who are wanting to be in the, the go doing mode, because you're going to be more effective if you can have that aspect open as well.
0: Yes, um, I lump creativity in with, uh, you know, procreation and, and intuition and those kind of things, because it all comes from the same place. And um, Creativity does not happen in the in the head.
1: And I thought, for me, one of the most sort of enlightening and also terrifying aspects of the book was you talking about our habituation to these linear patterns, right? That we're not even realizing that these aspects of ourself are shut off, and that this energetic flow has been sort of blocked. Um, and and it was interesting your example of our the natural freeze response to trauma, but that with the natural response, it ends pretty quickly and we unfreeze. And we're all, the rest of us now in our society, just sort of st- staying stuck in that frozen mode. Yes. Yeah, that's one of the
0: most revelatory things to understand is that there's no way to escape trauma, right? And uh, trauma, um, I mean this very, lightly, um, meaning uh, in in a large way, everything from, you know, short, short term upset to severe physical, emotional or sexual trauma, right? All of those things are stored in the body. And um, when you stub your toe, let's say, uh, you know, there's two ways to react to that you can go ouch and maybe feel that rush of pain and then that kind of jitteriness, right, that comes from really having hurt yourself and just go with that or you can suck it up and move on. And when you suck it up and move on, you are inhibiting the body's natural mechanism to release trauma. And of course, when you're young and horrible things happen to you, you didn't have that choice, right? Or uh, when you had a surgery, for instance, for instance, often in surgeries or so, the, the body's natural uh, release response is being suppressed because it could be dangerous for stitches or things like that. Right? So sometimes one cannot let the body do its thing. And in that case, uh, we can afterwards learn how to release old stuff and we can train ourselves to let the body release when things happen.
1: The other uh, revelation for me, and and I'm guessing for a lot of readers, was you say we can't force being by doing. And and that was sort of something you might have thought about before. But the way that you presented, it's like, ah, of course you can't. Um, And so you give an alternate solution because so many of the other um, options out there are really about more doing to get us to a state of being. And your vision and, and your approach is very different. So maybe would you mind sharing a little bit about what your vision is and then um, we can talk about the um, rewilding of oneself and the four major aspects. So Maybe start with, with what what's your vision and the aim for, for the work you do in the book?
0: Well, my vision and aim, and particularly in the book, is to um, find a way to not have to do to be, right? And so one of the big ways, there's several, but one of the big ways is to relax. And when I say relax, I don't necessarily mean you have to sit and meditate or force yourself to read a book, but to become aware of the parts of the body that are habitually clenched uh, in a way that have nothing to do with the activity we're performing. And so when that habitual clench when we become aware of that and when we relax that, we suddenly have a lot more energy. And that particular energy can then naturally and will naturally flow into the doing, right? So so relaxation is one of them. Sensitizing is another one um, where with fairly little amounts of um, application, huge benefits can be reaped.
1: You talk about um, one of the goals being the deepest expression of each woman in the context of a truly meaningful life. And after having done the show for a number of years, I think that's probably every human being's desire, um, if they are honest and can kind of get down to the, the deepest real want is to be the d- deepest expression of ourselves and, and, and have a meaningful life. And the pathway that you provide us is, um, reconnecting with our untamed, uh, our undomesticated nature. And, and I was thinking about it because recently I've been helping my daughter with her 11th grade. Uh, history and we're talking they're talking a lot about the colonial times and it just makes you extremely depressed and think we're in a much better place no matter what we've got now um than we were then but one of the things that has such a negative connotation is um you know the wildness and savagery and you talk a little bit about that in the book that this this negative connotation and how it really is all wrong
0: yes Yes, I mean it happens all the time when I when the book title comes up, and of course I have workshops with that name. Right? People always assume it's a bunch of women who whose hair stands on end, right? And they have fangs and claws, and they scream and shout and uh, froth at the mouth. And that is not what the wild woman is. The wild woman. Um, is uh, an archetype right in the I I come uh, one of my aspects of training is Jungian psychology and so uh, archetypal work is the kind of work where we use um, the, the the collective unconscious so to speak information and tap into something that's bigger than us right it's a little bit like tapping into the world wide web of the natural world And, you know, uh, the same way on the internet, you can get all the information there is, so to speak. In archetypes, all the information about that archetype becomes available and loads up in the body. And the wild woman archetype is the archetype of the part of us that's connected with nature. So it's the part of us that can feel our cycles, can feel the cycles of nature, understands how nature moves in us and through us and how to work and cultivate with nature. And that's very important to me because, as you were saying, when we talk about rewilding or reclaiming the uh, being and doing ratio, so to speak, when we are connected with our own wild nature and the archetype of that, which is essentially the archetype of the wise woman, the healer, the midwife, The sorceress, right? Like all of those kind of archetypes of having strong connection with one's intuition, with the body, and with the realms around us um, that are available, right? And not in a woo woo new agey way, but intuition is a really um, practical. Tool that can be trained and learned, and it's there's nothing woo woo about it because we would never have survived as humans if not for the fact that we could sense things um, and react to them instinctively before we react to them cognitively. And so, that all said, um, I think it's you know very important to know that the wild woman is not uh, crazed savagery. but there is an aspect to the wild woman that, to say it very bluntly, doesn't take shit. <laughs> right? Uh, and, and what I mean by that is when you are connected to your instincts and when you know what's happening inside your body, you are way less likely to consent to other people's and other situations' behaviors um, and not know what's happening. And then in the aftermath, get really upset about it. Uh, so... For boundary setting, for instance, the wild woman archetype and everything that comes with it is very important because there is a fierceness to the reaction of the body to something, let's say an insult, um, when it's not delayed by five hours, you know, where you have a conversation with somebody and then you leave and then you get into the car and you drive home and, you know, an hour later, it suddenly occurs to you that this wasn't okay because your body's finally caught up. So... That's the wild woman, the instinctive um, recognition of what's happening around you, both within you, people and nature, so that you can act properly and appropriately and accordingly.
1: You know, I I think about so much of society sort of searching for answers. and, And you say there's always sensation available in our bodies and that by undoing these habitual body patterns, um we can then reconnect to our authentic selves and the, the the genius that exists there and that the body doesn't differentiate between helpful and hurtful and that that seems to be a huge aspect of what you're sharing is that these are habitual body patterns and the body is just going to keep repeating them until we put in different and more um productive patterns And you approach it from instituting non-linear movement. Why does the way we move matter?
0: Hmm. Um, Well, one of the reasons the way we move matters is that, well, there's so much to be said about that, right? But uh, meaning any movement is good movement. You know, one of the big epidemics of our times is the lack of movement. And so movement um, is very important for the body to fulfill its natural cleaning uh, function, so to speak. Everything from the lymph, right, in the purely physical, to that mechanism we talked about earlier where the body gets to shake out and move out um, stuck and trauma patterns. So nonlinear movement is something I've developed over the years. It's actually started, um, I uh, used to see clients uh, in a rehab, in a very, very um, high-end dual diagnosis rehab, meaning, you know, people had um, addiction issues and personality disorder issues. So one of the things I found uh, there was that uh, all the talking in the world wouldn't help what was stuck in the body was sometimes very severe trauma. And the linear movement, meaning the going somewhere, doing something, that doing versus being again, um, could, could be used and was used, not only by the people in the rehab, but in general as a way to suppress that native kind of uh, release pattern of the shake and the, you know, the that kind of shivering feeling and, and kind of a bit of a freak-out feeling that comes in the body when you actually release something. And so nonlinear movement is a way to invite the body to come back to its natural release mechanisms. So it's a somatic movement uh, modality that's specifically designed to release things in a non-force way. So you don't have a cathartic experience. You're not being re-traumatized. You're just allowing the body to do what the body does best, which is clean up, uh, release, let go, because that is what the body is built
1: for. And the other thing that was surprising in the book, like, there's lots of different options for everyone that fits into your life, and it doesn't take a lot, but it takes repetition. That that is a, a super key element. Um, that you can't just sort of do it once a week or once a month, but that to, to really have an effect, it needs to be something that that's part of your everyday life. Yes, um, because
0: we, uh, and th- this is also the important piece here with that. So, the uh, habitual programming of the body, of course, comes through the body learning through repetition. And the repetition makes it so that a pattern gets ingrained in the body. And as um, we learn things as children, we learn them through repetition over and over and over and over. And the body, uh, because it's very efficient, essentially goes, Oh, well, I guess uh, we've learned this before. We don't need to learn that again. So that's why we don't change, right? Because there's no need for the body to learn another pattern if there's an existing pattern. And the body doesn't know that uh, we uh, have acquired patterns that are horrible. right? It's it's, it's just, it doesn't know. It just goes, oh, there's an existing pattern. Let's not, um, you know, add extra ones to it. And with that, of course, when you want to create a new pattern or override an existing pattern, you have to do it like you did when you learned walking or driving a car. Um, You have to practice and you have to practice as often as you can, or it won't stick. It will just keep the thing that um, is there uh, in place.
1: And so in your book, The Wild Woman's Way, Unlock Your Full Potential for Pleasure, Power, and Fulfillment, you talk about the four aspects, and I think we've mentioned two of them, sensitizing ourselves and then repetition, and then um, overload reduction exercises and motion. And one of the other things, again, a revelation was in... The focus on feeling your reaction, so internal turning toward versus manufacturing it, mm-hmm. um, and and I thought that that to me was was a, something to really think about. Um, how is that different than one might typically behave?
0: Well, uh, this is this is a this is an interesting one, right? Because um, essentially, what happens in the body, let's say, happens regardless if we acknowledge it or not. So um, if you are mean to me, let's say, right, and I get upset and I cry, um, or if if you're mean to me and I ignore it and move on, the result in the body, kind of that spike of the adrenaline and then the anger and then the sadness and all the things that come with it, are there regardless if I deal with them or not. But if I ignore them, then I need extra energy to suppress what's naturally there emotionally, physically, mentally, right? So not only do I have to deal with the outcome of the injury, so to speak, I also have to deal or have to expend extra energy in managing that or coping with it. And all that coping energy is energy that's bound up and can't be used, for instance, for creativity or for pleasure or for relaxation. So meeting sensations and meeting life where it is, is the um, orientation towards dealing with things as they occur and not push them down. And sometimes we can't deal with things right when they happen, but we can go back afterwards Um, And move them out of the body and cry or make the appropriate changes, you know, mentally, emotionally or physically so that our energy doesn't constantly get stuck in not dealing with things or coping with things or suppressing things.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the feminine and the unique challenges for women. And I, I distinguish that because as you say in the book, um, males and females both have a feminine aspects as they do um, male aspects, but there are unique challenges for women. And I think I just experienced reading at the title of the book is that women are often criticized for being too sensitive. And so in today's society, we often strive to be less so. And that aspect of femininity and other aspects are also equated with women weakness and being crazy or witchy um something that's a put down for women or even the connection to nature you know the the tides and the moon so you've created some workshops um along i'll be doing for some time before you wrote the book and and one of the things i love that you say is um two questions you that that you have in the book that you ask what would i do if nothing was required of me and when am i feeling most happy and alive Mm-hmm. Yes. so let's talk a little bit about living in this unprecedented time and the, the plight of the modern woman um and, and the irreconcilable goal, goals that may may exist yeah oh <laughs> there's a there's a whole book oh, you wrote it <laughs> yeah, i
0: did write it but i think it's very important to uh, i mean you can't talk enough about that because um Uh, We are in really in times that have never, we've never seen anything like this, right? Because on one end, we have these vast opportunities, um, but we also have vast challenges. And um, we're now in a position where all the, um, you know, the struggles and and, um, uh, the fight, so to speak, that our mothers and grandmothers Um, invested in, right? Feminism and and empowerment and all of those things are, they have arrived in a certain way, but with that comes um, a whole different way of living. And mind you, I mean, I I say this in the book, I want to say this, you know, here as well. Of course, we're a long way off from it being perfect, but it is um, more available than it's ever been. And with that, now the things that are available to us as well are very challenging, right? The, and what I call the plight of the modern woman in the book is the sheer choice of options, the sheer choice of what we can do, what we are um, able to achieve, um, where we can apply ourselves to. And that's, that is, that um, is it's a bit of an issue because the fact is, even though we now can have most jobs in the West, I'm talking, right, and in, in within a, still, uh, you know, circumstances that not are not ideal but are better than for my grandmother, let's say, or my great-grandmother, um, if I want a child, I still am the one who has to bear the child. There's no way out of that. And so with that, we have to make choices. We have uh, an age limit on our uh, reproduction which men don't have and because we have an age limit on our reproduction we also have an age limit on what finding a mate requires right uh, we are in a difficult situation because we can have it all but having it all happens within a time frame that's still the biological time frame of at some point no longer being fertile and at some point um, aging in a certain way and our energy waning and things like that, and that is not an easy thing to deal with because of course when you're in your twenties you think you have all the time in the world, and then I have women in my thirties in their thirties now um, coming to me and they go, wow, you know, suddenly now there's an urgency on things that I didn't know, and now I'm in a point in my career where really I don't want a child, but because now, now I've really kind of gone there. and But now if I don't have a child now, it might be too late. And, you know, whom should I date? And, I mean, it's very, very difficult. And um, that's not to say that it's bad. It's just it requires a lot more good information and knowledge so that the decisions we make are not the decisions we were programmed to make by, you know, society and our forefathers because they no longer work.
1: And you point out too that those decisions need to be made from a place of feeling adequate and not inadequate. And you give some great advice as to how to think about these choices and how to make these decisions. Um, and you talk about doing that in your life that, that you can't have it all in, certainly all at the same time and that there's going to be consequences and repercussions and there's going to be sacrifices to your choices and that that actually is something that's unavoidable. And you made me think about when I was my first year in law school in the torts class, you can't sue for things um, that happened on the road not taken you can only complain about things that happened on the road you chose and and hold the others accountable and hold yourself accountable right for for the choices that you made and not not about the ones you didn't um, and I think that that's something that's often skirted in today's conversations and has been certainly for the last generation that no you know not only can you have it all but you you better try to or you're doing a disservice to the women that came before you
0: right Right. And that I've heard that often, right, that we have the responsibility to live up to the expectations of the women who came before us. And on some level, of course, that is right. And there has to be an honoring for uh, those who came before us. But um, it's your life. And it's and you know, when we talk about children, it's also the life of dependence. And so um, it's not entirely true that we should have it all uh, just because we can. That's like saying, um, I, I should have all the potato chips there are in the world because I can afford them. <laughs> right? um, uh, when you eat certain things, they have, um, there's consequences. And when you do certain things, there are consequences. And there's nothing wrong with that because cause and effect um, is what allows us to make good choices. But it's foolish to um, expect that you can have it all and there won't be a price to pay for that.
1: And I think what's so powerful and lovely about your book is that it connects the dots as far as until we're in a place where we are um, connected to our authentic self and that uh, genius, bodily knowledge, that we aren't really making these choices from a, a place of authenticity. And you talk about a couple times about why emulation doesn't work. And then you also talk about like that, that the texture and flavor of ourselves mm-hmm. and that we need to get to a place where we can feel that and know that. Um, And identify our flavor, and then maybe we can try on other flavors, but it has to come from a place of knowing what flavor we are. Yes, I think that's very important because this brings us back to self
0: improvement or self help versus coming into our own, right? Because who we are um, is very unique. And um, actually, you know, no two women are alike, of course, no two humans are alike, Uh, but more often than not, either through societal or religious or political pressures, and nowadays it's social media pressure, we try and mold ourselves into something that's actually not true for us. And that requires a lot of work, and it has a lot of suffering attached to it, right? Because it's not true to the deepest part of us. And the finding out who we are has the um, incredible benefit of making choices from a place of freedom, right? Freedom to be who we are. And so the choices are not inauthentic or conformist choices. And, you know, it's not that easy because, for instance, I write about this in the book, right? I chose not to have children. And the operative word here was I chose to not have children. It wasn't because I was infertile or because I didn't have a husband or because I didn't have the means or anything like that. It was because um, when I really felt who I was and what I wanted out of my life and for myself and for my career, and then felt what I wanted for my children, which was an upbringing like I had. My mother raised me. She was a stay-at-home mother, uh, and you know, an amazing mother, Um, and so... I knew that those two things couldn't be reconciled. I couldn't be the kind of mother I wanted to be for my children and have the life I wanted to be as a woman. And um, do I have occasional pangs that I didn't fulfill that part of my, of being a woman? Yes. But I feel very good about the fact that I didn't bring children into the world that had to be minded by, you know, somebody else while I was traveling. or by having um, not fulfilled th- that incredible creative drive I had as a teacher and, and a, you know, a, a counselor and a writer in order to do something just because people thought I should be doing it. Because there was a time about in my mid-30s now, you know, I'm kind of over the hill, so people no longer ask. They still do. They go, so you don't have children? And then when I say no, they automatically somehow assume that that's because I couldn't. Um, or, you know, but in my mid thirties, people were like openly disapproving and saying things like, well, you don't know what you're missing out on and your poor parents. And don't you want to give them grandchildren? And there was, a, and, and that, that pressure from the outside, you can't withstand if you don't have a solid ground on the inside where you know who you are and what's actually best for everyone involved. Um, it's, too easy to cave into outside pressure when you're not fully formed in there. And so the home flavor, I talk about the home flavor, talk about the home flavor mostly as in the realm of relationship and sex, but this is also true for children, and career and things like that. Your home flavor, meaning who you are and how you express yourself when it's cultivated allows you to actually give of yourself more fully because you actually are aware of your gifts and your shortcomings and your likes and your dislikes. And um, you can give that to somebody in kind of an unapologetic way, which allows them to be freer in their expression. And, you know, so that's kind of the paying forward or the the domino effect of becoming clear with yourself about who you are and, and listening to all the aspects of yourself that then you can inspire people by being who you are so that they can also be who they are.
1: One of the, the other topics connected that you talk about in the book is the change in women's relationships and the need for community-based paradigm. And that that's something that's inherent within women. But I we, I, I don't think we have time for that now. So you're going to have everyone read the book on that because it's super, super important. But, but I want to talk about women being built for sexual engagement. And I think The conversation you have around that and the depolarizing of our sexual relationships, I think is anyone that reads this, you're going to save a lot of marriages. And I'm sure you have saved a lot of marriages with this. Um, your conversation around sexual preference and the ideas that there are these poles. Um, that need to exist for sexual tension and within erotic preference, the Shiva and the Shakti. And so maybe we could just talk a little bit around your conversation you have about diminishing attraction and the idea of this lost spark and that it could, yes, maybe be uh, a separation of common goals and values and miscommunication, but that oftentimes it's this loss of sexual attraction because there's a loss of polarity and erotic friction.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think... Um, you know, these are very old concepts, right? Meaning uh, the whole play of the internal and external masculine and feminine goes back to the, you know, really ancient texts, particularly in the Buddhist and Hindu traditions, but also in the ancient Christian traditions, right, where we look at our internal parts, the go and the flow part, so to speak, within ourselves, and then the go and flow between two people, and what creates strong atta- attraction between two people is opposition, right? And everybody knows that because it goes opposite attracts. Well, yes, opposites attract for the reason that people are very different. And that difference creates two distinct poles. And those two poles then create what is now called polarity, right? Which is the attraction between a plus and a minus, a dark and a light, right? So, polarization is the key or the the spark that makes for sexual attraction and there's of course chemistry and other things but Mm -hmm. when we talk about that and the thing that I realized in my many years of being a couples counselor um, and that I'm very and I write about this of course in the book that I'm very adamant about is that people understand the difference between relationship and sexual attraction and that's super important because relationship is based on sameness. So the more you have in common with someone, um, the better your relationship with them will be. And that's fairly apparent, right? If you work with somebody, you have um, only the work in common, but that can be a pretty strong bond uh, that you can align yourself with. Um, But if you meet somebody, and uh, you don't know them, there's this beautiful moment where you get to know each other, and in the getting to know each other in that honeymoon period, you discover what you have in common. You know, you both find out you have an obscure love of. Medieval French literature, or something, and you love sushi, and oh, and you know some people in common back in New York City in your university days, and so you create sameness, and the sameness makes for the compatibility of the relationship. And while that process happens, you are acutely aware of the differences, and that is why most relationships, when they start, have such a strong spark, uh, such a strong sexual um, reaction. Then, though, what happens is, um, in order to make the relationship good, you have to create more and more sameness, because, um, like I said, it is all about common values, common interests, having the same ideas about money, politics, child-rearing, religion, right? The more you have in common, the better you get along. And the more you have in common, though, the less um, distance there is between the two poles. And eventually, if you are lucky, and I'm you know, I'm saying this as in it is much harder to find good relationship than it is to create sexual attraction, actually. So sexual attraction is built on principles. While that kind of relationship where you can be with somebody and agree with them and have good communication and have common values, that's not as easy to find. But in the process of the common values and the coming closer and closer and closer together, the sexual spark will wear off because you're just too similar. And um, two, you know, two people who no longer are far enough apart that there can be a spark between the two poles might have a very lovely, loving and, and close relationship, but they might not have crazy sex anymore or it might not want to have sex at all. You sometimes see that. I always joke in my workshops when you see these people in their Winnebago with their matching tracksuits, and they're walking somewhere holding hands, you know they have a great relationship, but they're not getting it on that night, you know, (laughs) because they're they're pretty much the same person. And that's not a problem if you know that when you want to create that spark, you have to make yourself different again. And that's not so hard to do when you know the principles, which I describe in detail in the book, right? And, And I give specific exercises and things that can be done So for the sake of having the sexual spark, not every moment of the day, but for the sake of having the sexual spark, you know how to pull apart again and become two separate humans. And then that repolarizes the relationship.
1: And I love that you say that with such well of course. And I think that that people don't realize that I think people think oh the spark is there or it's not there and once it's gone it's out and you know too bad there's no going back. And and that was maybe the biggest revelation in your book. I was like, "Oh my gosh, like it you so in such a clear cut obvious manner you lay out these not very difficult or challenging steps as to how to bring the spark back."
0: Yes. And you know that is something I am very Proud of, so to speak, right? In a good way, proud of that I have taught many, many, many people how to recreate that spark and how to keep it alive, and reignite it, and how to keep it alive because they're principles and they're not that hard to learn and they're very intuitive. It's just that we're never taught it. Um, you know, relationship and sex is the one area in which we don't receive any education except the education we receive by picking it up by the people who raise us and that's usually not an actual education right Right, that so, and that in hollywood that in hollywood right and and hollywood essentially portrays a fairy tale
1: so we've just got a couple minutes left and I, and I just want to end with you you mentioned – um Dr. Peterson and his research in that self-reported happiness has been going down in the last 30 years, which sort of seems counterintuitive to the progress we've made in so many areas. And you highlight the importance of being able to assess and care for the self in an authentic way and to make authentic choices and choosing what aligned with our true nature. And oftentimes when I'm interviewing an author, I'll read the acknowledgments in their book first off. And with your book, I was listening to it on audio, so I didn't get the acknowledgments until the end. But when I did, I just had a huge smile on my face because I thought, all right, Michaela Boehm is living what she's just been preaching to us and laid out for us. Um, and not in an addition to your life, but you could tell from your acknowledgements, the fact that you thanked your neighbors and you thanked your facialist and the person that keeps your house tidy and takes care of your animals, um, among all the other people in the book. And, um, at one point I had wondered, you know, how is she finding time for her practice? And you talk about that in the book as well, that it, it it's not a practice. It's integrated as, as the fabric of your life.
0: Yes. And, you know, that was the whole reason, um, I wrote the book and I wrote the book the way it is. I had a huge problem with, uh, you know, um, I, well, I should say a huge problem as in I had huge pushback in keeping the practices separate from the chapters, um, because you know the common idea is that you ha- make a chapter and then you do a practice, and then you do another chapter and do another practice but i 'm an you know avid reader crazy about books and i and i 'm crazy about practice, and I know that if there 's a chapter with a practice i 'm not going to do the practice while i 'm reading the book, and then i 'm never going to go back, <laughs> you know because that practice is it 's a different thing than reading a book, and so In the book, I have the practices all together in the back. There is some in the chapters and then they are elaborated again in the back so that there's an area where you can just go um, when you need to uh, infuse your life with a little bit extra. And the practices are done so uh, and written so that you can really integrate them into your life. It's a minute here, a minute there, an understanding of what, for instance, happens in the base of your body while you're driving. Um, you know, an invitation to spend five minutes in nature or listen to a song in the car. So because it, the only way that we are going to make a difference in our quality of life in this particular moment in time is when it can be integrated with the rest of life. It's not a separate thing. We can't go into the monasteries of old, right, or the retreat centers of old. It has to happen every moment of every day. And the most beautiful thing about my life for me, as you said, is that every part of it has those aspects. I can have communion with the women who, you know, would uh, help me in the house and with the animals. And I can have community with my neighbors and I don't have to live in a commune or, um, you know, spend designated time necessarily. I can apply myself to, those values and those things every moment. And that was the real wish for me in the book that I could supply some inspiration for that to actually happen for anyone.
1: It's a wonderful book. And the way you wrote it out, it's exactly that. The exercises don't sort of get in the way and stop you. And the ones that are there are perfect for the time. And then you go back and do the other ones. And such an amazing example of... Um, a life well lived and, um, offering the ability for others to live a life well lived their own life well lived as well. Mm. well thank so you. thank you. And thank you very much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure talking to you again. I've been speaking with Michaela Boehm, uh, about her book, Wild Woman's Way, Unlock Your Full Potential for Pleasure, Power and Fulfillment. And you ping on so many other things we didn't get to talk about. Um, And also just your intuition and the ability part of the sensitizing, your ability to not only have more self-empowerment, but to connect all the things that people are after in our world today, community and connection and living an authentic life.
0: Thank you so much. Thank
1: you.